This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello and welcome to the Professional Book Nerds podcast presented by Overdrive. This is Joe. Happy New Year. I know it's already the second week of January end of 2023, but I still wanted to say it. Hopefully y'all have been enjoying your holiday season. Uh, I know I did. I was really enjoying my time away. Before we get into today's episode, I wanted to remind y'all to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you do your listening. Remember that you can find us on socials. We're on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at ProBookNerds, and you can send us nerds an email at professionalbooknerds at overdrive.com. With that, let's get into today's interview. My guest today has an MFA from Louisiana State University, and her work has appeared in Bodega, Pearl Noir, The New Delta Review, and more. She lives in Los Angeles with her husband and teaches creative writing to older adults at Santa Monica College. Here to talk about her first novel, The House in the Pines, which was just announced as Reese Witherspoon's January book club pick, is Ana Reyes. Ana, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I am so excited to get to talk to you today about your first novel, The House in the Pines. And to get our listeners started, could you give us a a rundown? Yeah. um, So it's about a young woman named Maya who lives in Boston, and she's trying to get her life together after a difficult past. And she comes across this video on YouTube of her ex-boyfriend sitting across from a young woman at the diner. The young woman drops over dead suddenly out of nowhere. And this isn't the first time this has happened. Seven years ago, Maya's best friend dropped over dead while talking to Frank. So Maya is convinced that he had something to do with this. Even if he never touched either women, either of the two women, um, she's convinced that he killed them somehow. So she has to try to get to the bottom of this before he does it again. And that means going back to her hometown, this uh, post-industrial town of Pittsfield, Massachusetts, and um, coming face to face with him and returning to his house in the Pines um, to try to figure out what his secret is, how he killed these two women without ever laying a finger on them. It's... It's so spooky, like from the jump. I I love a thriller. I love that kind of blend of magical realism and and like psychosis, psychological thriller all wrapped into one. And so from the beginning, you just have this unsettled feeling. So like in the beginning, we do, like you said, start off in Boston with Maya and her what I like to think of as like somehow boyfriend Dan. You describe it beautifully that. They just kind of ended up together. Before we even get into what makes Maya unreliable, how did you decide on Massachusetts for the setting of your novel, starting in Boston and then moving into Pittsfield? So I actually grew up in Massachusetts. Um, I was born in Texas, but I moved to Massachusetts um, when I was in elementary school. So I'm very familiar with that. And Pittsfield is actually my mom's hometown. And I lived there too um, for a few years. I lived with my grandparents um, for fourth and fifth grade, Uh, went to the same Catholic school in Pittsfield that my mom went to. And um, it's just a really, it's it's a very beautiful place, um, but it has kind of a, a, a sad history. Um, a very rich history, but but also kind of a tragic history in that GE, um, it was a GE town. And GE um, was, you know, the biggest uh biggest employer um, for the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. And then it began moving out in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And it left a wake of devastation. So not only did it pull out and leave a lot of unemployment, but it left behind a lot of um, environmental devastation. So they polluted uh, the Housatonic River and other rivers and local lakes um, with PCBs. And um, these PCBs are cancer-causing agents uh, that are very difficult to clean up. So it's it's kind of this tragic 
place in that it's it's filled with natural beauty. It's one of the most beautiful places I've seen. And yet you can't go into a lot of the um a lot of like the, the bodies of water because they're polluted. Um, so it's just a very rich place. I have a lot of family there or, or you know, my whole family, my mom and her entire side of the family is from Pittsfield. So I feel like I, I know the place and having lived there, um, I just felt like it was a really rich setting for this kind of story. Absolutely. It it really is. And there's, there is something like just in that, in the reality of the place that this is, this based off of that, the environment alone can kill you. And that that really lends itself well into your storytelling with this. I am realizing now I have a Harvard sweatshirt on. I <laughs> love Massachusetts. So when I started reading, I was like, oh, perfect. <laughs> <laughs> what was it like exploring kind of a place you grew up in your writing? It was, um, it was a lot of fun. You know, I went back there with my mom and we went to the Berkshire Museum, which makes an appearance in the book. Um, we went to Hanging Rock. We went to a lot of these iconic places. And the thing about Pittsfield is that it really is this gorgeous place. It's the heart of the Berkshires. Um, so it's surrounded by natural beauty. So it was really, it was just really nice to go back and, and explore it a little bit. Um, it was also, there was also a sense of responsibility as I began to write about it because um, I do love that town and, and the people there. So I really wanted to, to portray it in a good light or in a true light, um, while also kind of talking a little bit about what happened there with GE and the kind of complicated legacy that it left behind. So it was, it felt high stakes a little bit because I know people who live there will read it, including my family. Um, so I wanted, I wanted to portray it in the truest and also, um, kindest light that I could. Absolutely. I would say like, no matter what, it's genuine. It's a genuine portrayal. It's authentic. It's real. And it, and it is kind. It sounds like the relationship you and your mother have is very different from the relationship that Maya and her mother have. Did you, while kind of working with her and researching and, and writing, how did, how did you almost like fabricate that? Because it seems so different from just what you've described of like, yeah, she went with me on these, these visits and we were having like a good time together. Well, thank you for saying that. Cause I think my mom, <laughs> when she read the book, I think she was a little bit worried and she's like, this isn't me. Is it? I think every writer probably deals with that at some point. Um, but the mom in the story is very much not my mom. Um, you know, obviously when you're telling a story, you need conflict. Conflict is drama. So I created this relationship pretty much out of, out of whole cloth. Um, my mom is, um, she's actually sort of the reason I became a writer. Um, when I was, very young, you know, three, three, four, five years old, she was actually in a um, PhD program writing a dissertation about T.S. Eliot. <laughs> so, so okay. she always had books around the house and I grew up reading all kinds of books. And in fact, I remember um, when I was very young and she was working on this dissertation, I didn't understand obviously who T.S. Eliot was. And I just assumed he was like a difficult friend in her life. <laughs> they seemed to cause her a lot of grief. Yep. And so in my mind, it was like, well, who is this T.S. Eliot? And why won't he just leave my mom alone? <laughs> I love that. <laughs> so my mom is, is a big reader. Um, she's, she's the reason I think that I became a big, big reader and then eventually a writer. Um, and so my, my relationship with her is great. And it was really nice um, actually writing about her hometown because I was able to talk to her about it. And she remembers before GE left. And so okay. she, she was able to tell me about like, this is what the town used to be like. And every Thursday, um, you know, people would cruise down Main Street and the department store would stay open late and the restaurants would stay open late. And, you know, everybody would come out, whole families, and it was just this really vibrant scene. And it's very different now. Um, there's a lot of shuttered stores. It's just a complete, it's, I've never seen it like that. But she was able to kind of recreate for me what it was like. And so I had this clear picture that I was able to develop of Pittsfield before GE left and Pittsfield after GE left. And that contrast, I don't think I would have been able to, to picture that if I didn't have someone who remembered it, who could, you know, talk to me at length about it. Um, so my mom was a huge help in writing this book, a huge inspiration um, for me in becoming a writer. And she's very much not the character <laughs> in the book. <laughs> well, and that's just so amazing. And it, it feels special just listening to you talk about 
working with your mom. I mean, what a what a special treat, not only because she was that inspiration to get started, but then here you are years later, getting to almost celebrate her life uh, in, in a way and, and turning that into art. And that's that's absolutely beautiful. Thank you. So when we first meet Maya, she's having trouble falling asleep. Now I gotta, gotta get into the dark, unreliable narrator part here. She is going through clonopin withdrawal. She's been on it for years to fall asleep after the death of her best friend, Aubrey, as you mentioned. Why did you decide on kind of creating these unreliable stakes? Well, I'm always, I've always liked an unreliable narrator. Um, I think there's yeah. something true about that. I think we're all kind of unreliable narrators. Yeah. Um, but the reason that I settled on Klonopin withdrawal is because I went through that myself. And part of what I was working through when I wrote that book was going through Klonopin withdrawal. Um, I started taking it for sleep. Well, I, I went to see um, a psychiatrist in my 20s for depression and what I now realize was mild insomnia. And he started me on an SSRI and Klonopin to sleep. And he didn't tell me that this was addictive or potentially addictive. So um, I'm on it for several years before I get into grad school. I moved to Louisiana to start the MFA program at LSU. And the doctor there is like, you can't be taking clonopin every night. You're going to have to stop. She also didn't apparently think that it was as addictive as it turned out to be, at least in my case. So I had to stop cold turkey. And um, unlike Maya, Maya's getting her pills not through a doctor, but I, I always was, you know, listening to my doctors and doing what they said. So when I had to stop cold turkey, it set off this just really intense insomnia that would last um, for months. And it, and it actually took me almost a full two years before I could just lay down and sleep through the night the way that I had before I ever started clonopin in the first place. Um, so going through clonopin withdrawal while you're writing a book, um, it kind of, it, it allowed me to, to write through it. So Maya's experience is, is in many ways based upon what I was going through. I end a little bit um, because it is fiction and for dramatic, for dramatic purposes, I heightened it a bit. Um, but a lot of what she's going through is what I was going through. And so writing about it helped me through it. Um, kind of helped me process it and just getting it on the page um, was kind of cathartic in a way that I think was was really helpful for me. And I will say now it all makes sense because it was such an incredibly real life experience of withdrawal that at some point I was just like, wow, how? And, and it makes sense writing through the pain, basically. I also gotta kind of like poke at the doctors that one was definitely concerned enough to say you shouldn't be on this every night but also at the same time not thinking you could be that addicted to it right so that definitely answers my next question of how did you research the effects of withdrawal you didn't have to you already you were living it what was it like to kind of be battling this while you were writing and how far in the process were you of kind of getting off of clonopin I was, um, I, I stopped it right around the time that I was starting the novel. So oh, it was very fortuitous for me at the time um, because I was, I was working on my thesis for, for my MFA program. And this book was actually my thesis. So it's come a long way since then. I've, I've revised it. I've changed a lot of things. Um, but this first draft was written while I was going through clonopin withdrawal. So it was a, it was a really difficult time. Um, I was also teaching a, a class of um, undergraduate English composition and working on this and attending my own classes and workshops. So it was a really difficult time. I, I wouldn't want to go through it again. Um, but I do think that ultimately it made me stronger. It probably made for a more, um, it probably made for a better book because I was right there in it. I was able to write about the experience and hopefully get some of that, that um, angst onto the page and out of, out of my head. Um, so, so it was really tough. I would say that was, you know, probably the toughest thing that I've ever gone through. Um, and coming out of it on the other side, I, you know, I, I, I wish I hadn't had to go through it, but I, mm -hmm. but I'm glad that, that it actually happened while I was writing a book because, you know, I was able to kind of process it and turn it into something. How did you decide on this story for your thesis? It was, um, well, to be honest, the house in this book is something that I've been writing about for a really long time. It appeared in the first story that I ever wrote. 
Um, so when I was 11, I was living in Pittsfield and spending a lot of time at the Pittsfield Public Library, which also makes an appearance in the book. And the library had a creative writing contest for children. And um, I've always loved scary stories. So I sat down to write my first story and it wasn't, it wasn't so much that I wanted to be a writer, but that I wanted to win the contest. Because if you win, it, the prize was a $15 gift certificate to a local bookstore. So oh, I was and that like, would I, do it. Yep, that, that's it. I, if I win this contest, I'm going to get more books. So I'm going to be a writer. <laughs> so that's that my kind of answer. That's the real exactly. motivation. <laughs> it all began. So I sit down to write this story. And, you know, at that age, I'm not outlining. I'm not like, I'm just like, I want to write a scary story. And so the house appeared in the first story I ever wrote. It ended up being about a house. Um, this creepy house in the woods with a, with a girl like me, um, who was, you know, I think 10 or 11 and, um, she's lost in the woods and she comes upon this house. So I won't say any more about it because I don't want to give away anything. Um, but, but there was something about the house that, that I was thinking about even then. And then years go by, 20 years go by before I sit down to write my thesis. And again, I wasn't really outlining. I was going through this difficult time. I wasn't really thinking about like, what is this going to be about? Um, but the house appeared again. And so this book is kind of my exploration of that house and like, what does it mean to me and, and why the house? Like, what is it about this house in the middle of the woods that, obsesses me somehow that it kind of keeps coming up in my writing um so that was sort of the the impetus for the whole thing everything about that is just fantastic from the the carrot on the stick of winning that bookstore gift card all the way to having something that kind of gnaws at you that you have to figure out a way to let out you said about 22 years in between, were there ever or any other moments where you found yourself writing about the house or trying to write about the house? Or was it really those moments when you were like, I have an opportunity to get a story out and this is, this is the time? Actually, the two, two of the stories that I published while I was in grad school, before I ever even sat down to write this book, were about houses. <laughs> so such a strange thing like looking back on it was because I never sat down and I was like I'm gonna write a story about a house but everything I sat down to write this house popped up in it um so I'm thinking I, I published a story I think it was in 2016 um about a woman stuck in her house <laughs> and then I published this other very short um it was like a flash fiction piece um that was a, it was a finalist for the Bartholomew Bartholomew Prize for short pro short prose and the first line was, inside my house, there is another house. <laughs> so houses on the brain. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's so strange. And, and, and looking back on it, um, I didn't really know, like, what did it mean to me or, or why is this obsessing me until I sat down and wrote this whole book. Um, and I feel like now I've kind of got it out of my system. So there will be no more house. The next book's not going to be a house. I promise. <laughs> Um, but yeah, it's definitely something that, like you said, not on me. It was, it was kind of always there, um, almost in my subconscious, like just trying to swim up to the surface. That's, it's so interesting to hear, you know, with, with the different people I get the chance to talk to, what is trying to like break its way out, what character, what setting. And I, I find that so fascinating that it's, that it's almost like, things have to take their time to to germinate almost before you have the words or you have even just like the full story in mind. How much yeah. would you say that this book changed from your original kind of thesis? Quite a bit. So the original thesis, um, like I said, I didn't outline it very much. I kind of just got it all out onto the page. And then I gra eventually graduated, handed in my thesis, um, set it aside for over a year while I just focused on getting better and also getting a job and um, moving back. <laughs> yeah, those fun things. <laughs> yeah, all those things, just getting my life together um, post-grad school. So I didn't really look at it for a year. Then when I went back to it, I felt like I was in a much better place and I was able to really um, look at it more objectively and kind of think about like, okay, so... I have this, um, this story, but it, it needs focus. And there are certain things that need to be, you know, themes and things like that, that need to be tightened. So I spent another year working on it, um, just getting it right before I started to query agents. And that process, um, you know, that's a whole thing, <laughs> writing the query, querying. Um, so I was extremely fortunate in that 
my top choice agent was willing to take me on. Um, amazing. Yeah. And she, she's just wonderful. Um, she, her, she is, she has done some writing herself and you can just tell that she has a great eye and a great, um, she's, she's a great editor. So she actually worked with me for almost two years on, on getting this book right. And she, she was able to identify like, okay, you have some very creepy moments in this book, but it's not really, you're not really writing a thriller. Like the, the genre is almost a little bit vague. So she was able to help me focus the book, um, into, into basically not quite what it is now, but into, into a more, um, into more of a thriller. So, so, so at that point, um, she went out with the book and, and she, she sold it and my editor, um, I was also lucky this whole way. I've just gotten extremely lucky with working with really good people. So my editor, um, also saw, you know, like that we could make it scarier, that we could kind of bring out certain elements and heighten certain things. And, and she worked with me for another, I can't even remember exactly, but I want to say it was like another 10 months or something. And I ended up writing an additional um, almost 20,000 words. So we cut things, we added a lot more. Um, she was just really helpful at, at like bringing out the best in it. And um, yeah, at that point, it bore very little resemblance to the first draft. Alice was still there. And um, Alice had to get out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but so much had changed. Um, the, you know, the central relationships, the main character, uh, a lot of things about um, theme were kind of brought more to the surface. Like there's a book within the book and I hadn't really done much with it in the very first draft. It was there. It was... Um, you know, it, it definitely was an important thing to the main character, but it wasn't really a, a main part of the book. So she kind of helped me bring that into more focus. And that that was something that I, I really appreciate because um, I think that ended up being a really important part of it. How was it tough to edit, to go from this kind of piece that had been living inside you that you had taken as your thesis? I mean, it sounds like since you had wonderful people surrounding you that you weren't necessarily precious about the process or the original kind of germ, but what was, what was that like for you? Because that's, that's a lot of your life to, to tackle and basically revamp. Yeah, it, it was tough. I mean, there were certainly parts when I was like, you know, I know that we want to get to point B, but how am I going to, what can I cut and rewrite? Like, what can I do to get to point B? So it, it took a lot of problem solving. Okay. Um, you know, there was, there was a lot of, um, sort of like rethinking like what I'm trying to do here. I don't think it, I mean, the main idea didn't change at that point, but but a lot of things were brought into sharper focus. A lot of things were expanded. A lot of things were cut. So it, it was tough because I had to sort of think about the book in ways that I hadn't before and maybe in a more reader focused way. Um, but, but I trusted my editor very much. And so I never, there was really nothing that I disagree. There was never an edit that she gave me where I was like, I just don't want to do this. Um, there were certainly things where I took like part of her suggestion and not all of it, but there was really, she never really gave me a suggestion where I, where I had to, um, where, where I felt like I can't do this. I don't want to do this. I wanted to do all of it. Um, so, so it was ultimately, I think, I think it made me a much better writer. That's, that sounds like an amazing way to start off your career. Just that kind of like ease into it, have wonderful people surrounding you and and to be open to critiques, changes, edits, but also to be receiving them in a way that was true to your work. I I cannot say enough good things about this book. I'm also dying to know about the audiobook or if there are plans for the audiobook because I am ready to reread this already and I finished it a couple of days ago, but I, I the next time I think I want to listen to it and kind of, because this feels like a book to me that I can just put on while I'm doing doing my things around the house and then be scared by the end of it and just go, uh-oh, I gotta, I gotta watch something funny now. But uh, what have you had any work on the audiobook yet? I haven't heard it yet, but I know that they have, um, we have found a reader 
And she's going to, um, I, I believe she has started recording it. And I'm also very excited. I actually cannot wait. I'm, I'm, I'm like, when I found out, because um, I, I didn't know, you know, being totally new to publishing, I wasn't sure that I was automatically going to get an audio book. So when I was contacted by the um, audio book producer, uh, that was just really, really exciting for me. And I got to listen to various samples and um, and I loved them all. So I was able to to sort of be like, this to me sounds the most like Maya in my mind. Um, and I believe she has started it and I'm, I'm really looking forward to, to getting some clips. That's exciting. And listeners, we, we know very little right now because we are recording a little in advance. So <laughs> you're hearing this in the new year. Uh, we may be, uh, we may be in 2022 still, but I am also <laughs> excited to, to hear where this goes and it will make a really compelling listen. I can, I can tell just from having read it. Now, looking at um, the YouTube clip that starts off this adventure of Maya's, basically, uh, first, what kind of YouTube rabbit holes do you fall down? Hmm, animals. I, <laughs> I okay. love Dodo. You know, I don't know if you're familiar with Dodo, um, but they have a yes. yeah. And so I can watch animals <laughs> all day long. It's kind of like my <laughs> my wind down routine. I'll sit down and I'll go to like, you know, maybe Instagram reels or something and just watch. Um, I love cats and dogs getting along. Any type, anytime you have two different types of animals and they're somehow friends, that's like my favorite thing. So the unexpected <laughs> friendship. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So I've seen, you know, I've seen rabbits and dogs who are friends and, <laughs> you know, dolphins and poodles, anything, anytime you get two different animals, love that stuff. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello everyone, my name is Matt Neglia, and I am the host of the Next Best Picture podcast, part of the Film Entertainment Awards website, nextbestpicture.com. On our show, we explore all year long what is possibly going to win Best Picture at the Oscars. We do this by conducting interviews with people within the film industry, holding weekly reviews of the latest theatrical releases, and on our main show, where we dive into various different topics, answer your fan questions, and also do our best to explore Oscar history's past in hopes that it will tell us something new for this upcoming award season race. We hope that you will join us on all the various podcasting networks. We look forward to seeing you over at nextbestpicture.com. And, and then, of course, this starts our journey in motion. And this is also where we start to break into your your storytelling method here with jumping between the uh, time around Aubrey's death and Maya's present as she is trying to figure out what's going on. So what kind of compelled you to use that that time jump, that past present method of storytelling? Um, I, I didn't originally do that. In the first draft, it was mostly, um, you know, just Maya in the present. But as I was writing it, and I'm talking about this thing that happened in the past, this mysterious death of her best friend, I started to think, what did that look like? What were the final weeks of this teenager's life like? Because to me, there's something very poignant and also very compelling about knowing what's coming, you can, you know she's going to die at the end of the summer. So to kind of see her in those last weeks of her life, I thought would just be really poignant. Um, you know it's coming, so it's not a surprise. It's, it's more like, how is it going to happen? And why did it happen? And how did she spend those last days? Like those last days are going to tell us a lot about what's coming. So like what, what happened in those final days and weeks of her life um, that ended this in this tragic way. It also really lends us credence to why Maya is struggling the way she is. I mean, to see her friend and what their life was like together and, and how this basically final summer brings her to where she is today. It's a, a really interesting, almost like meet in the middle. Mm -hmm. So 
you you have said that this is a spooky book <laughs> that your editor kind of helped you uh, punch that up a little bit, maybe from the original. How did you decide to go the spooky route? Uh, what were your inspirations? So I've always loved scary books. Um, I think my first love, my first literary love was Christopher Pike, um, who I discovered when I was about 10 or 11 at the Pittsfield Public Library. Um, I just remember, I can still remember being there and kind of looking, you know, at the, the YA books and picking out the first one, which is Bury Me Deep. And I was kind of like, oh, well, and I devoured it. And I started going back and just getting all of his books. So Christopher Pike, R.L. Stein. Um, and then when I was a little bit older, um, not much older, but a little bit older, uh, Stephen King. <laughs> um, so there's just something to me about this that's always been very compelling about scary stories. And yeah, there's like, and also mystery. I'm very drawn to mystery. If, if something, if, if there's like a question um, of like what happened or who did it, any, any type of like mystery in a story, I'll keep reading just to find out what happens. Even if it's like not my favorite book, I have to know what happens. Exactly. The pull is there. I am a, I am a sucker for thriller and mystery, anything that's like kind of vaguely true crime, but then, oh, we can throw in some horror or supernatural elements. I'm there. It's there's yeah. there's just something about it that I I feel myself every time I'm like, oh, it's we're going into this season. So you know I'm in the mood for a thriller. And then when I look at the year as a whole, I go, I am just always in the mood for some sort of thriller. <laughs> I gotta, I gotta be real. <laughs> Same. Right. So uh what other are you interested in any other genres or writing in any other genres? Or does this kind of feel like the right spot for you? I think this is the right spot for me. I think I'm going to continue writing um, scary books. I think that, you know, I might, I might explore other types of scary books, like more, um, you know, like, obviously, I'm not going to write about houses anymore, haunted houses. I'll probably write a haunted house story, but, but I do think that I'll write, you know, stories with, you um, maybe slight supernatural. What I really like actually is stories that might be supernatural, but might not that kind of straddle that line. Um, so like a book that I um, read recently, um, Jackal was, it wasn't that great. <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah. amazing. That was a book that like, I really liked how you were going in and it's like, it kind of has this like true crime feel, but there might be something supernatural going on. And I don't want to say too much because for people who haven't read it, um, but I feel like it did a really good job of, of making you wonder, like, is there something supernatural going on or is this just people? Right. Is this just, yeah. Oh, such, such a good book. Uh, and yeah. Aaron is an absolute delight. Um, also Riley Sager, he does that a lot. Uh, oh, I, I love his books. Better. Uh, and all of them, except for the one that is actually supernatural, are all the, are all the like, is it supernatural or is it people? And oh, such yeah. such a good balance. Maybe it's because I was a Scooby Doo kid that I I like <laughs> that at the end you can like pull the mask off yes. and it's Old Man Jenkins. But <laughs> <laughs> that's a great reference. <laughs> so I'm I'm definitely excited to to hear that you are like in the spooky realm, and that's that's you know. Maya starts to read her father's book. And of course, as always, no spoilers. We're, we're tap dancing around on the lines here. But we see a lot of input of Guatemalan culture just throughout the piece, especially when his book starts to uh, get involved. What drew you to this culture? And how did you work to embrace their mythos? Um, so I'm half Guatemalan, like the character in my book. And my dad is from Guatemala. He is alive, thank God. <laughs> so I, I think that for me, Guatemala is is a place in this book where um, it, it's it's about her getting in touch with her roots, and the idea of Guatemala as a place that she hasn't been to that's kind of existed in her imagination this whole time, um, and then she eventually goes there um, and is sort of confronted with the reality versus what she's grown up picturing and what she's grown up sort of imagining based on what she's heard and what she's read. So to me, this this um, this idea of the reality versus fiction or imagination is really important theme of the book. Um, so writing about Guatemala was also important to me because it, it, I, I was able to kind of explore some of the um, things that I think are really important about its history. And 
bringing in the idea of like the, that, that her father, um, I don't think this is a spoiler, but her father is dead. It, the book is from her dead father. Um, and when you find out how he died and what happened, it kind of opens up into a little bit of a brief history lesson. Um, I don't want to say there's a lot of history in the book. I think it's fun <laughs> for the most part, but there is a little bit of history when you find out what happened to him. And that kind of gives, gets us into this idea of, I think, inherited trauma. Um, Guatemala is like Pittsfield, really, is, is this beautiful, stunning place. It's known as the land of eternal spring, um, but it also does have this dark history. And so when she reads this book and she learns about what happened to her father, it kind of helps her understand some of what's going on in her own life. So it kind of, in a metaphorical way, gets into this idea of inherited trauma um, and this idea that people with roots in, in colonized places, even if they didn't grow up there, um, they might end up exhibiting signs of, um, of trauma based on things that happened in the past to, to people in their family. That that makes so much sense to me, just the the way to identify experiences that we didn't know we were carrying that truly belong to someone else. And we may not know our own relationship with them until we're almost forced to look, look within or look at, at reality. You talked about your mom. Uh, Did you get to talk with your father at all about Guatemala, about this, you know, like this idea around the book? Yeah. So my father um, loves history. He's a real history buff. So when I was pretty young, um, he would talk about Guatemala in really glowing terms because, you know, he was, he left when he was 11. So he has all of these memories of his homeland. And there's this kind of sense of nostalgia, I think, that he, that he instilled in me about Guatemala. Um, But then he also told me about why they left. And he told me in a way, because I was pretty young when he told me, he told me in a way that was rather story-like, like here's what happened in Guatemala. This is why things are the way that they are. And it's a really tragic story. Um, and so I kind of grew up with both of those ideas. And like Maya, I didn't actually go there for myself until I was 17 years old. And and, and it was sort of like what happened with her, where it's like, I have these stories from my dad and from my grandmother who, who remember it so fondly. And then I also understand this very dark history because I read about it. Um, and then when I go see, see it in person, I see that it's both of those things. It is an amazingly beautiful place. And we do have so much family there and they are so loving and warm and welcoming. At the same time, it's a dangerous place where we spend most of our time inside the house because to walk around in the streets out there is, you know, it's, it's dangerous. You could get robbed. Um, there is a ton of gang violence. Um, I think I'm losing track of your question now. <laughs> I just kind of went off on a tangent. No, that that's okay. I mean, that just as an experience, I mean, reliving those memories with your dad and and kind of looking at the way that he painted, you know, like how his how his child memory remembers it, but then yeah. also like the the grimness of reality. It's it, it's yeah. really powerful. So now let's let's dive into your a little more into your writing. Uh, what do you like most about writing twists? Well, twists are are fun because um, you kind of have to walk this, you have to straddle the line between um, being unexpected, of course, as a twist, people can't see it coming, but if it's too out of left field, that's not good either, right? The last thing you want is to read a twist and be like, wait a second, <laughs> how could this, like, this wasn't right. set up at all. You so, don't want to jump the shark on you your twist. Jump the shark. Yeah. So, so often I think with twists, it's about putting in just enough little breadcrumbs so that if someone were to read it again, or, or just looking back on what they have read, they can say, oh, okay, that makes sense. Now I understand why so-and-so said this at this point, or, you know, there, there, there should be little clues um, leading up to the twist, but you can't make them too big because you don't want people to guess the twist. Right. Uh, do you have a thing you hate about writing twists? Or is it truly just like a double-edged sword all the way across, like really fun, but also really risky? <laughs> um, well, since this is my first book, I don't think I've, I've had enough experience um, sure. today to, to be able to talk about it, about what I hate. <laughs> um, I think I think it's difficult. I think that you know that that it ends up being a lot about editing because you might write your twist and then in the editing process, 
look at everything that leads up to the twist and be like, oh, okay, I need to be a little bit more subtle at this point, or I actually need to drop in a couple of clues here and there. Um, so I think that, that the hardest part maybe about writing a twist is, is not the twist itself, but going back and perfecting the lead up to the twist. That makes total sense. I, I love to hear how authors' brains work and just kind of what got us there and what you're kind of taking those mental notes on. How do your outlines work now, now that you're actually outlining when you write? Yeah, <laughs> not that. Um, I, my outlines are pretty general. So I have a general, the book that I'm working on now, I have a general idea of, well, I mean, I know I have a, a good idea of what, of what the plot is, um, but I try not to outline so meticulously that there's not room for surprise because you really want to have that um, ability to change course and also for your characters to surprise you. So as you're developing these characters, they are sort of taking on a life of their own. Hopefully <laughs> when it's working, they take on a life of their own and they might do something that you didn't really set, you didn't really plan for them to do that's not in the outline. Um, but just makes sense. That's what that's something that they would do. Of course, they would do this thing. That's who they are. <laughs> I, I love that, that it leaves you room for like meeting the character and getting to know them better, but also that you're not trapped. You know, you're not losing the opportunity for that light bulb moment. Right. Exactly. So you got your MFA from Louisiana State, uh, and we know that your mom kind of inspired you in writing. But what else throughout the years has inspired you? Uh, to kind of pursue writing as a as a career? Um, I've always been drawn to writing. I remember mm -hmm. um, even before I wrote my famous story at 11, <laughs> um, I would write little, I want to say poems that were probably extremely cringy and, <laughs> and um, you know, uh, juvenile. Um, but there's just something very satisfying about getting your thoughts on paper. And before I um, before I really started writing fiction in a serious way, I was writing poetry and going to poetry workshops and going to poetry readings and events. Um, and I still love poetry. I still you know regularly read poet poets and poetry. Um, so I think I've always just really loved language. And writing fiction feels like the most satisfying um, sort of expression of that because you can kind of, when it's working, write poetically in a way that is pleasing in a language level. Um, I, I'm a real sucker for, for the beautiful line um, that sounds nice in addition to, to its meaning. Um, so you get to do that and then you also get to, to incorporate storytelling. And I think that stories are how I've always made sense of the world. I think a lot of us are like that. You know, stories, if you think about it, are how we all pass down our most important family information. This is where you're from. You tell a story. Um, not only that, but, you know, values and, and lessons are passed down in fairy tales and have been for literally millennia. Um, so stories are, are really important to me. And so this ability to combine my love of storytelling with my love of beautiful language um, just kind of eventually coalesced into, into being a fiction writer. That's that's such a treat to, to see like all the different threads finally come together. Inspiration is hard to come by, I'm sure. But what inspires you when you're writing? And where where in your life do you draw inspiration from? Poems are actually a big part. I love reading poetry. Um, I'm reading, or I, I regularly read um, poets who are tapping into themes that I'm interested in exploring. Um, so Marie Howe is one of my favorite poets and she has this poem, um, part of Eve's discussion that I actually have taped up on my fridge because I just love it so much. And part of what she taps into in this poem is actually helping me think about what I'm writing now. Um, so for focusing on those themes that, that I, that I want to write about, I think is probably my biggest inspiration is, is the, the, the idea that I want to work through on the page. Also tone, um, you know, I like listening to, to, to music. And one thing that, that I like is, um, listening to just sounds. I subscribe to this website called mynoise.com. And they have just a bunch of wonderful sounds. So they have like space sounds and underwater sounds. 
And when I list, when I write, I like to listen to things that don't have lyrics because the lyrics, if, if there's lyrics, there's words in my head and then I'm trying to think of my own words, it just gets messy. Um, so I like to listen to atmospheric sounds and um, that, that to me is very inspiring too because it kind of helps set the tone. Crackling fireplace in a coffee shop. So you just have the like <laughs> low hubbub. Oh, I love that. I, I don't love silence all the time. Uh, mm -hmm. And right, sometimes I, I cannot hear any more words. So we'll definitely be checking that out. That's great. As we start to wind down, I do have some uh, questions from a nosy podcaster. Uh, what are you reading or listening to right now? Let's see, what am I reading? Right now I'm reading, um, I, oh, it's called Dead 11. Okay. Yeah, it's called Dead 11, and it's a book that comes out, I believe, in June from my publisher, and I'm reading it to give it a blurb, and honestly, becoming a writer, one of my favorite things is that I get to read books in advance, and this is just such a fun book. It's about this, um, well, it's actually kind of an ensemble story, but it's essentially about this island where everybody seems to be stuck in the 90s, and there's something very strange going on on this island. And in addition to loving the spooky aspect, I just really love the nostalgia aspect because I was in high school in the 90s. So when he writes about these things, I'm like, wow, I, I can totally imagine myself wearing that girl's outfit or like being that person who's like, um, you know, watching the OJ Bronco chase and like, <laughs> being really blown away by it. Um, so I'm reading right, that right now um, to give it a blurb. And I also just finished The Furrows by Namwali Serpel. I might be seeing it. Um, but I was really excited to see that the New York Times listed it as one of their 10 best books. Um, that just, I think that just came out like yesterday or the day before that list. And I was like, yes, <laughs> I was right. <laughs> like, I, I did read the right book. Yeah, I, I love that. I love when it's like, see, that was on my top too. <laughs> Yeah. And that book is just the mystery. You could cut the mystery with a knife. Like it's that phenomenal. And it's just one of those books where you're like, what is going on here? And you don't know what's coming next. And you're not even sure it's going to wrap up at the end, but like you, you have to keep going because it's just so rich and so mysterious. You don't want to miss a thing. You can't put it down. Oh, I know. I love that. And it, it's such a treat to be able to read books early, to know what's coming to also just be excited because half the time I want to see how people react to the book I just read early and be like, okay, what's, what's everyone saying? What's the, yeah. what's the sage? I know time is also a precious commodity, but are you binging anything right now? Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Interview with a vampire is my new obsession. Mm -hmm. It's just so good. Um, it, you know, I've never read Anne Rice, which is crazy because um you know, she's a New Orleans writer. She's writing about this place that I wasn't in New Orleans. I was in Baton Rouge, but I went to New Orleans every chance I could. Um, so I feel like I should have been reading her all along. Um, but I'm definitely going to read her now because this show is so good. And the dialogue is just really incredible. It's written by a playwright. And you can kind of just hear um, in the dialogue that this is a person who is a master at what he's doing. And the characters are great. And then it just has that wonderful New Orleans feel. I can never have enough of a, of a good New Orleans vibe, especially when you're throwing in vampires, the supernatural. I'm ready for it. <laughs> um, you've already brought it up a little bit, but when I say public library, what comes to mind? Oh, um, comfort. <laughs> um, quiet. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, when I was a kid, like I said, I would spend so much time at the Pittsfield Public Library. And so also escape, like just, you yeah. know, like sort of like the Narnia experience where you're stepping through these doors into a completely different world. And then suddenly you look up and you're like, oh, my God, I'm, I'm in public. <laughs> I'm at the library. <laughs> right. Oh, I'm not in a different world. I'm I'm somewhere I was. But it, it yeah, it has a very transformative property. Yeah. Okay, what is your go-to order when you're ordering dinner in? Oh, there's this great place called El Cartel that's like right around the corner from me and it's burritos. They also make empanadas and they have the, right now, actually probably not anymore because Thanksgiving's over, but around Thanksgiving, they have pumpkin empanadas, which is every bit as good as it sounds. It's like a pumpkin pie in an empanada. 
That sounds so delicious. We actually yeah. have a, a really good empanada place nearby. And now I'm now I'm like, maybe I'll go there and see if they're doing anything pumpkin. <laughs> what project, of course, that you can talk about are you working on right now? I'm working on book two. I don't, I, I probably could talk about it, but I don't want to because I haven't really, I haven't really told, um, actually, I haven't told many, anyone about it really, um, except for my agent. So it feels still like a little bit under wraps, but I'm really excited about it. And it's another scary book um, set in a different world, not in a different world, but like a different space than, than this book. Um, but I'm about, I want to say like a third of the way into it. And I'm just having so much fun. And I feel like it's coming easier than the first book because now, now I've written a book and I kind of know how to do it. So I feel like I'm just kind of enjoying it a little bit more and it's coming a little bit easier you ripped off the band-aid and now it's just kind of like, oh, okay, we can do this now. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> was it difficult starting from scratch? Did you have something else that was like clawing to get out with this, with this new work? Of course, respecting the the boundaries, but. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is a little bit different in that I, I, I kind of went into it knowing what it, what it was about in a way that I didn't know with the first book. So it wasn't, it wasn't something clawing its way to the surface. It was more like, okay, this is I want the story I want to tell. And as I've started telling it, certain themes have sort of emerged at the surface. Um, but, but I feel like it's a little bit more, um, my, my process has been a little bit more traditional almost. Traditional. Yeah. Less, less driven by, by the subconscious maybe. No, that, that makes sense. <laughs> and uh, where can the listeners find you online? I'm on, I'm very new to Twitter. I am on there. I'm on Instagram and on Facebook, all at Ana Reyes Writer. Perfect. And Ana, before we wrap up, is there anything else you'd like the listeners to take away from The House in the Pines? Hmm. The main thing is I just want people to, to sink into the story um, and, and sort of escape into it the way that I do into my favorite books. I, I hope listeners dive in to The House in the Pines um, out at the time that you are listening to this episode. It's already ready for you to borrow from your local library or purchase from your favorite bookshop. But Anna, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Thank you so much, Joe. This has been this has been wonderful. It's been an absolute treat, and I really do appreciate it. Listeners, uh, make sure you are following us online. And of course, as always, happy reading. Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode on Overdrive.com, and our library friends can purchase these titles in Marketplace. Professional Book Nerds is proud to be an evergreen podcast signature program. To learn about other evergreen podcasts, visit evergreenpodcast.com. Our podcast is produced, recorded, and edited by Emma Dwyer, Jill Grunewald, and Joe Skelly, and presented by Overdrive. To learn more, visit professionalbooknerds.com. Hey there! I'm Hannah. And I'm Audrey. We are a sister filmmaking duo and co-hosts of Sleepover Cinema, our show where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of the girls, gays, and theys of the late 90s and early 2000s. Princess Diaries, The Cheetah Girls, Aquamarine, Cinderella, the one starring Brandy. We haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them, and we want you to rewatch them and review them with us. Are these movies as bad as critics would have us believe? Do we even care if they are? We are always unpacking that very question on Sleepover Cinema. Check out Sleepover Cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcasts.com. See you soon.